know what happened, but like they at <laughs> one at one point they they picked up all the geese and like p- took them somewhere else, and the geese came back. Well, wow. There used to be a credit union. We're on a it's a basically a runoff pond, but a big giant lake. And there's a credit union down the down the lake, and they used to pay. Well, they'd herd them all in our entryway, so we'd come in on a Monday, and it was just goose shit everywhere. Nice. All right. So here's what, um, what's, what are we talking about? Mortgage money today? Yeah. We're going to talk about where does mortgage money come from? What? You don't like that? I love it. Oh, why does my rate change? Why does my rate change? (laughs) So, um, I'm trying to think how, I mean, this is like one of those subjects where like, we don't know enough about to like probe. I know a lot about it. You don't. Oh, okay. I'll fire some (laughs) damn questions. Okay. Um, so here's what we're going to do. We're, we're going to go, we shoot for right around 30 minutes, um, which I, we have a stopwatch here with us. So we're kind of monitoring that, John and I are. Everything that we're going to do is completely editable. So if you curse or pick your nose or something like that, we can edit all that out. If you like get stuck on a question or you lose your train of thought or whatever, don't worry about it. Just take the pause that you need. And then just keep going. Like the we just recorded one that John knocked a coke off the table, and so we just no. Oh, wait, that was a beer. No, that was it was beer? under oh. the table. I kicked it. And oh, you kicked it. Kicked the a beer from under the table. So like stuff happens, and we just stop and and deal with it. So once we get going, I will intro the the podcast, and then I will intro you, and then we'll just dig right into some questions. But we're gonna focus on. Like, where does mortgage money come from? Where, where do lenders get the money to give loans, so to speak? And there's like, a, there's a couple different roads I'll take you down. Do you want to go down the rate side or do you want to focus more on the secondary market, warehouse, Danny Freddie, that side of things? Probably that side of things. That's okay. So you say not the rate side, right? Okay. All right, so the second half of that. Wherever you go, I'll follow your lead. Okay, oh, and one more thing. There. So there's three cameras in front of John and I, and you just need to focus on the, the Zoom camera, but if if you notice we're, we're not looking, looking this way. at you, it's because we're looking at cameras in front of us. Not my and first rodeo, and they're I got at you. A, they're at a different height or whatever. <laughs> he did so, this for, He did this one three times beer? last month. Are you chugging that beer? <laughs> Can I really go crack a beer? I got four in the fridge. Yeah, Slide us one. <laughs> I don't. You know, listen, I used to keep booze here, but like processors would come and steal it and shit. Did uh, I ever tell allegedly. you? Allegedly. Hide that somewhere. Did I ever tell you about the time? So like, um, I don't know what it was. We were talking about stress and anxiety or whatever. And I said something about, you know, anxiety medication at the time I had some Xanax and I was keeping this bottle of Xanax oh, yeah, kept, kept in my lower. briefcase and I went and, and I was like proving to everybody I had, so I went we we're in our office upstairs I go get the bottle of Xanax and as I take it out of my briefcase the top is like open and Xanax just starts raining from the sky like like it was legit in like slow motion okay well it gets like all behind the furniture and stuff where like you can't get all of the pills but I am telling you, over the course of a few weeks, like people somehow figured a way to get an arm back. Like, 
there there was like four or five or six pills of Xanax like behind my desk, which you remember there was like that much room. But somehow people had either worked an arm in there or their hands in there or something, but there's no Xanax there anymore. <laughs> it's, it was gone. There's no office there anymore. You know, there's also no office there anymore. Yeah, John, you know, we, we went from the big six floor office. I had a, t I had a view of Tampa Bay. Now we share an big office. Big corner <laughs> office. And now my view is the dumpster. Yep. Yeah. I mean, there's worse. There, at least you have a view. It's entertaining. People at least walk by. Yeah, I don't. Those are the type of people, you know. We probably don't. <laughs> They're the smokers sitting out back. Oh, the there smokers and, so, yeah, and people pilfering through the trash or whatever. Yeah, right. So, all right, we ready? Ready when you are. All right, Barnsey. All right, welcome to another episode of the Contacts to Contracts podcast. I am Brian Lovell here, always with Mr. John Jones, and uh, we're going to take folks in a little bit of a different direction today. Yeah, it's, it's it sounds good. We're going to talk a little bit about. Uh, where mortgage money comes from. Where mortgage money comes from. So to help us out with this, we are going to bring in John Barnes, who is the chief secondary officer. What does that even mean, dude? I don't know. I'm still trying to figure it out myself. <laughs> chief, the important part is chief. Is chief, so. yes, yes. <laughs> we'll go, we'll yeah. lead with that. So John, uh, John Barnes, welcome to the show. Um, thanks for joining us today. I know that you're a very, very busy person. Um, John, where do we want to go, man? Uh, I mean, I, we open up, I mean, I guess I just want the consumer to know, like, where, where's this money that we get to lend out? Where does it come from? Yeah, so like I guess as an example, we'll say this. So we closed as an organization last year. Two and a half billion. Two and we'll a half billion it. dollars. Like we didn't actually have two and a half billion dollars. Not sitting in the vault. We did not. <laughs> so John might have it in his vault. <laughs> no, no, we're not close to that. <laughs> uh, no. So John, tell us a little bit like where where do lenders get where does the money come from that we use to uh, to make mortgages? Yeah. Um, so to rewind the clock back in the day. Um, before a lot of a lot of the secondary market structure got set up, you'd walk down the street to wherever you have, you know, a couple hundred dollars in the bank. You'd walk in and say, I have a job. I've got $800 in the bank with you. Uh, I'm looking to buy a house. And they would basically look at what do you have in your bank account and what are you making every month? And they'd say, okay, we're willing to give you this much money. That was before the Great Depression. Um, and even to this day, a lot of people do the same thing. I bank at XYZ Bank. Uh, I'm going to walk down the street and walk in and say, hey, I'm looking to get a home loan. Um, the problem with that was when the Great Depression happened, it caused all the banks to basically stop lending completely. So walking out of that, um, our government actually formed Fannie Mae, mm -hmm. which is the Federal National Mortgage Association. Um, and the intent of it was to be able to provide people who wanted to buy a home, whether it was a bank or a lender at the time, uh, an opportunity to where they could lend and they're not lending money that's out of their, their personal coffers, their vault, whatever it is. So that was kind of the foundation for the market that we see today. Um, the money that we use to lend, um, we borrow that 100%. We utilize something called a, a mortgage warehouse bank who basically give us a big giant line of credit. And when a borrower is looking to buy a, a $300,000 house and they're taking a $250,000 mortgage on that one, we say we need the $250,000. They let us borrow it. 
Um, we we then provide that money to a title company and we're given a, a time frame then to sell this loan on the secondary market. And that's the part that I think a lot of people don't understand is the secondary market. So John, um, can I stop you for just a second? So um, it sounds to me like that's a pretty big credit card. I mean, is that like essentially it's like a black card? Yeah, it's like that essentially the same thing. Like the, the mortgage warehouse bank is like basically a credit card. Like here's a couple hundred million, you know, you guys go make some, make some loans on it yep they okay. charge us interest for every day that that we have an outstanding balance they charge us a, a fee every time that we fund a loan utilizing that credit card um, and at the end of the day the expectation is we're going to pay that money back to them okay so i gotta i'm gonna dig just a little bit deeper with you so um from the mortgage warehouse line there's a per transaction fee to transfer funds um, and then do lenders pay uh, a ba the balance of the entire warehouse line or do they pay the balance of what's outstanding on the warehouse line at the time what's outstanding so to use round numbers let's say we have a hundred million dollar credit card credit limit that this warehouse bank has allowed us to utilize and at the end of the month we've got $80 million outstanding. So we've lent out $80 million of that 100, 100 million they've given us. The interest we're charged on that month is on the 80. Okay, perfect. So that's that's the short-term solution. The long-term solution is I have to pay that warehouse bank back. So I funded that $250,000 mortgage. Somehow I have to come up with the money to actually pay them back so I can fund the next one. Okay. And that's where the likes of the secondary market come into play. I mentioned earlier Fannie Mae, um, they are a secondary market solution where I'm able to sell or pool a group of loans and deliver that to Fannie Mae. Fannie Mae then owns that loan. I, as Van Dyke Mortgage, retain the right to collect the monthly payment. So odds are anybody who has a mortgage is probably owned by one of three, three, three government entities, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, or Ginnie Mae. Mm -hmm. um, and whomever they're making the payment to is basically servicing the loan on behalf. They're collecting the payment and making sure that all the information gets relayed through to those entities. Okay. So that makes me ask the next question. And all right. So lender makes a loan off of their warehouse line. They're interested in getting that money back into the warehouse line so that they don't pay the interest on it. And they get the money to do that from one of these um, government-sponsored entities, GSEs, right? So where do the GSEs get all this money? We're talking trillions of dollars. Uh, yeah, on an annual basis. And when you when you extrapolate it out, I mean, they've made whatever the number above trillions is. What's the zero after a trillion? Is it a gazillion? It's I think a gazillion. <laughs> is it a gazillion? <laughs> a gazillion sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what they do is they form pools and what pools are, are they are groups of loans and there can be very small pools. It can be $500,000 worth of loans in a pool. It can be $500 million worth okay. of loans in a pool. They package those up and they go to Wall Street with them. What happens there is you've got investors who want to invest in real estate. It's a good investment for retirement funds, for short-term investment, long-term investment, whatever it might be, they have an opportunity to buy into this. So I've got a hundred million dollars I want as a hedge fund advisor. 
I'm going to buy into one of these big giant pools that are out there and you're guaranteed to get a, a rate of return. So let's say for instance, we form a pool and it's primarily note rates that are in the 4% range. So 4% up to maybe four and a half. Um, we as a servicer are entitled to a portion of the interest rate of the interest that's collected on a monthly basis. The rest of that gets remitted through. So they get that return on top of it. Okay. So for $100 million, we'll offer you three and a half percent interest rate. Okay. So is it is it fake money then? <laughs> I mean, <what's... laughs> no, it, it's absolutely real money. I mean, obviously, when you it's all just zeros, but yeah, um, it's, real, yeah. it's real dollars that yeah, are exchanging. Large hedge funds are buying this and putting it in their portfolio for people that like are maybe my age and older that want to be a little bit more conservative Safe going with their into money. retirement. So and, there, and so there is a dollar for dollar exchange of hey, here's a hundred million dollar pool of mortgages, and they're going to pay a hundred million dollars for it. Yep. Okay. All right. And, and, to it, but and, yeah. and then the fixed rate of return is how those investors get a rate of return on the investment that they made. All right. So, so they, let's say that hedge fund, like you said, buys the hundred million dollar mortgage pool, that money actually then goes to Fannie Mae. Correct. Okay. So like, wow, that's like a lot of changing hands, mortgage, warehouse, bank, lender, Fannie Mae, hedge fund. Wow, there's a lot the of goal, change in hands. The goal of it is, is to have Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and Ginnie Mae. Those are the three GSEs, government-sponsored enterprises. They're that centerpiece. So all the lenders come to them. So you, everyone's going into them. And the same thing with Wall Street. All the investors are coming into them then. So they are kind of that central spoke to allow liquidity to the mortgage market so they're going to take your loans, they're going to buy them from. Mm -hmm. And the leverage on the other side is all these investors, I don't have to go directly to Wall Street as Van Dyke Mortgage and try to find someone to buy my $100 million worth of loans. Yeah, because you're going to you're gonna give them give them over to one of the GSEs and they're going to pull them to, to yep. go forward, right? So they're kind of the middleman. Correct. Yep. Yeah. Um, and the go ahead. No, I was going to say that the key to that is when when we sell a loan to Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, or Ginnie Mae, we retain the servicing rights to those. So that's that the right to collect the the payment on a monthly basis. And we get a small, it's a very small cut of the interest that's collected on a monthly and annual basis. Um, but that's where the biggest money is on the mortgage lending side. Is on so the, is in the servicing, servicing side. Correct. Okay. So the goal on the origination side. So when I, we go through the primary market, which is origination, processing, underwriting, and closing. Your goal with that is when I go and sell that loan to Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, whomever it is, or maybe I decide I want to sell this off to an aggregator that's out there. My goal is just to break even on our hard costs here. Okay. So I don't want to make money when I'm selling the loan. If you want to make money, it's all on the servicing side. So okay. let's say it costs, in terms of all the things to originate a loan, it costs me $5,000. My goal when I sell that loan is only to make $5,000. If I go above that, great. I did a good job. Okay. 
So what happens if a lender decides not to retain servicing? Are they selling that loan at a premium to somebody else then who wants to collect the servicing, I'm assuming? Yep. For a fee. And that's where you're going to see the aggreg aggregator market come in. And that's going to be, you know, the big names that are out there, Wells Fargo, Penny Mac, Amerihome. They go out there and they're acquiring these loans from the likes of mortgage lenders who close them solely with the goal of they want to acquire that servicing because, again, that's where the money's made. So their goal is they just want to break even on their side. So if if it costs, they have to pay me my 5000 and if it costs them $500 to acquire that loan, their goal when they sell it is to make $5,500 on the loan. Okay. Okay. They break, they break even at that point. Most of the time, they're losing money on that side, but they're doing it with the promise that this borrower is going to make their payments and I'm going to get a cut of that servicing interest every month. So it's a long-term investment for them. Right. So you're money. circling back. I mean, I think it's important that, you know, whoever's listening understands that because we're selling directly to Fannie, Freddie, and Ginny, that we all as lenders, originators, are underwriting to a certain standard level. Um, so let's say we, you know, if, if we, we're going to lend or, or qualify a borrower the same way as Bank of America, is the mm -hmm. same way as Wells Fargo, as far, you know, as far as making these loans sellable. Yeah, because they all need to be saleable, saleable to one of those right. GSEs. Yeah, so I, I think that's a lot of times there's a miss there, you know, because we hear, you know, my local bank won't ask. Yeah, for my, yeah, my, yeah, and the and the reality is, is to, I, I always call it like they've got to fit into a box, right? There's a guideline for each one of those loan programs. The guidelines are the same for everybody. It's an even playing field, mm -hmm. right? Um, and in the the box is set by those three GSEs, right? Yep. So. And, it, and the box is basically set it there for their appetite of risk, right? So like, Correct. you know, John, in, in, the, in the unfortunate scenario where there's a default, how does that play into all of this stuff? That's a whole other wrinkle to this. So <laughs> um, on what I'll call the, on the Ginny May side, those loans are going to be insured by FHA, VA, or USDA. On the conventional side, so those are going to be loans that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are buying. Though anything that has an LTV above 80% has private mortgage insurance. So you basically have insurance on these loans in the event they default. On the conventional side, it's only if you're above 80% LTV. So there's only so much protection that you get, and it only protects you so much from loss. Mm -hmm. That's actually what got Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac in a lot of trouble in the, the late 2000s. Yeah, yeah. The, they, they were in a situation where uh, the mortgage insurance companies weren't paying because the servicers weren't doing a good job and they were the loans that they had were originated out of compliance. They didn't fit in that box you mentioned. So Fannie and Freddie had to put them on their balance sheet. They had to buy these loans out of the pool because they weren't Wall Street quality. Mm -hmm. And that's what got them in trouble is they were bleeding money left and right, and they had no no way to solve those. So it can be an issue on everybody's side. On the servicing side, um, we're in a situation where we have to advance the interest on some of these loans. So we have a cash investment on our side. If loans go into default and ultimately foreclosure, we're carrying those costs until one of those insurance companies, FHA, VA, USDA, or PMI, pay up their portion of it too. All right. What else you got? I hit you with the fire hose on that one. Sorry. 
<laughs> I like that. So the penalties, if we miss the box originating alone right now, um, you know, in today's market with the changes of Frank Dodd and everything, what uh, what's the onus or the responsibility of us if if something gets missed? Um, if it doesn't fit into that box, it's not saleable to them. Okay. Um, so if it doesn't fit into the box for Fannie Freddie Ginny, you're pretty much cooked. Now there is an appetite out there for these near miss loans of. Mm-hmm. You know, I miscalculating the DTI by just a, a, a hair and it's not going to be saleable to one of these outlets. There's someone out there, typically REITs or hedge funds, who have an appetite on this and will take the servicing and they basically portfolio the loan. That means they're taking money out of the investments they have or out of their vault somewhere and they're paying us the money, but they're going to buy it at a discount. So if it's a $200,000 mortgage, they're probably only going to pay me a hundred dollars Hundred eighty thousand dollars. Okay, for that loan, if it's if it's a miss. Okay, but that that would allow even if it's a miss, that's gonna. So to kind of backtrack a little bit, you know, we talked about it starts with this mortgage warehouse line. We lend the money as a lender. We get our money back to pay off the mortgage warehouse line through one of the GSEs. If it's a miss at one of those GSEs, we don't get our money back for that. So now we're kind of like scrambling we're missing a, a payment on that on that credit card like we talked about right. we'll call it a credit card all right so at that point instead of being able to pay off that credit card in full you're only going to be able to pay a portion of that credit card off in full so to some degree you got to have the capital of your own money at that point to make that up am i hitting it spot on that's all a risk game you're taking the risk that you know, you expect mistakes to happen, unfortunate as they are. Mm-hmm. So you're taking the risk that the vast, vast majority of the loans that you're closing are going to be ones that are you're going to be able to get rid of. Um, and when you mess up, you got to have some money in your back pocket to pay the bill. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So like if there was a mad, crazy run on a bunch of defaults, um, that would put a lot of lenders in a difficult situation um, because they would be undercapitalized on their warehouse line to be able to to make loans, right? And so I think there's a, I don't wanna, what's the word I'm looking for? There's there's a um, phenomena, I don't know if you wanna call it a phenomena, there's something coming up here soon that we could see, you know, s- some of that happening, right? Because right now, because of the CARES Act, there's a number of homeowners who are currently in forbearance right? Meaning those payments aren't being made. Um, you know, as the lender who made those loans, we have a responsibility to remit some payment for those. But if at the end of the day, they're not able to get out of forbearance and they go into default, um, then we're, we're going to have to pay those credit cards short, basically, right? So, yep. you know, we've talked about it, John, here on, on the podcast before. Our our feeling, and we'll get John's here opinion here in a second, I'm sure, is we don't see a huge amount of defaults coming because of the homeowners having so much equity in their home today that if they get into that situation, they should just be able to sell the home, pay off the mortgage, and move on. Um, what are your thoughts on that, John? I agree. Um, we're in a rare situation right now where the market is the values on homes yeah. have increased so aggressively. Um, and 
and they've been very, very stable, honestly, for the, the past decade. So there's a situation where you could have bought a house two years ago. You lost your job. Unfortunate things happen. And in the early 2000s, you would have been underwater by 20, 30 percent of, yeah. of what you bought it for. Now you're in a situation where you might be up 15 to 20 percent. Mm-hmm. The bigger concern I have is for those borrowers where maybe their income has changed. They went from making $4,000 a month and now they're, they're only making $2,000 a month. They can't afford to stay in the house. Mm-hmm. What do we have on the rental side to, to help these borrowers? Because a, a two bedroom apartment isn't going to work for somebody who's got three kids. Yeah. So they're looking at renting a house. Are, are you able to get a house on the income? that they? And that that's the scary prospect I see is, you know, what do we have as an alternative housing source for some of these borrowers when home ownership isn't in the cards today? Yeah. And, and the rental market smoking hot as well. And here in Florida, I know like you know, just to rent probably a three two is 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 well over two thousand dollars. Wow. Where home you know, homeowners are probably paying that on their mortgage currently. So it's a they're not really gonna get a benefit by leaving the existing home. So the concern would follow is how long would they maybe try to continue to stay okay. in the home, you know, post expiration of the CARES Act. Um you know, um, that that, that yeah. could that could take So I'm I'm following what you're saying. What what you're suggesting is that Hey, if I if I sell my home, I can't afford to go rent another one. So how long can I live here without paying Before my I, mortgage potentially and hopefully get caught back up and that's what would lead to a default and and eventually a foreclosure. Yes. That yeah. okay. Yep. I'm following you. The the crazy thing is with the lessons that we learned coming out of the 2000s there are so many options to keep a homeowner in their home right now that as long as they try and they actually have the income and honestly they communicate it's going to be difficult for a borrower to be facing that situation where they just flat out there's not an alternative for them either the income loss that they had is is too great and honestly yeah you need to downsize or you need to be looking at something different Um, but there's so many alternatives out there on the servicing side right now to foreclosure Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, I have a question too. Going going back to that uh, mortgage line of credit or that credit card, so to speak, um, is it one of those things like use it or lose it? Or like I guess what I mean is like let's so let's say a lender has a line of credit of a hundred million dollars, but they're only using sixty million dollars. The, is that going to affect the way that they do business? Yes, it will, 100%. Um, so these, the and typically it's banks that provide these, but there are private entities that do as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so when a warehouse bank actually allows you $100 million, their expectation is that you're going to have a certain utilization of that. Okay. Um, they're basically earmarking on their side okay, I have a billion dollars that I can lend out on, on a regular basis, and I've got 100 lenders, here's the breakdown of what it needs to be. If you don't utilize a portion of it, you're impacting their ability to go out and lend that money I to see. a different lender. So there are non-use fees, there is under-use fees that you face, um, and everyone's going to be different. Some of it might be 50%, some of it might be 
got to be 40% utilization, sure. but you do get charged a fee if you don't use a certain percentage of it. Okay. Yeah. I, the reason I find that interesting is like, you know, I, I have a credit card, like just say through my bank that I, I mean, I haven't taken it out of my wallet in a year and a half probably. And I swear, like they send me emails constantly increasing your life within well that and incentives to like, hey, you know, if you'll charge a thousand dollars, we'll give you, you know, an extra hundred thousand dollar rewards points, you know, or something crazy. Like they're always trying to get me to spend. Of course, what they're trying to do is to get me to overspend, <laughs> right? Or miss a payment, <laughs> or miss a payment, fee. right? But I mean, I'm, it's kind of similar in that regard, right? I'm, I'm, you know, I, we're talking small lines of credit. Let's say you have a ten thousand dollar credit line versus hundreds of million dollar credit lines, but um, I'm sure that it's this, it's the same. It's just scalable, different. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious. You mentioned that you know you have to use the line, but how was the scramble a year ago when rates dropped? I mean, you know, with the existing credit lines and what did what did the lenders face then when when rates really dropped and, and the market took off and, and it, how difficult um, was it to get those lines increased? I will say from our situation, it was not difficult. We have incredible relationships with the, the four banks that we utilize. And from our side, it was as easy as picking up the phone and saying, hey, we, we need an increase. And here's the percentage we're looking at. Um, we what, were wasn't the case everywhere though <laughs> oh no no uh, there were a lot of lenders that were scared and, and the crazy thing a year ago is the guidelines shifted quickly mm -hmm. you went from you know the the minimum credit score for most outlets was probably somewhere around 620 for, mm -hmm. for govies and they had dti restrictions and then COVID happened and all of them shot them up they kicked mm -hmm. up to 680 some of them 700 for a minimum credit score no manufactured, no high high DTIs, no high LTVs. They basically said, we don't want any of this risk. Um, and a lot of lenders were stuck with loans that they couldn't sell. They had to look to that tertiary scratch and dent market um, where your people mm. are buying stuff on a discount because that was the only way they could get rid of them to, to keep funding loans that were good and that they could sell. Mm. We were fortunate that we do have Fannie, Freddie, and Ginny tickets they never faltered. They never changed. They put out some additional guidance sure. or guidelines that we had to do, but yeah. we had a for sure outlet at the end of the day and we have an appetite for servicing. So for us, that transition was easy and it was small increases. It wasn't like we were walking in saying, Hey, I, I need a 200% increase to handle this volume. It was, Hey, I need, I need another couple million here. Can you help me out? Okay. Yeah. Hey, I, I, so I got another question. Um, is, the fees that a warehouse bank, what they would charge in terms of per transaction and your interest rate on your balance, are they different among other lending institutions? Yes. Yep. 100% okay. there. So like, what would that be based on? A lot of it is just negotiating. Okay. Uh, you walk into a contract with a set fee and that's just what their standard is for their con their contract. Once you get a familiarity with each other, they understand, hey, we're not messing around. We're going to get stuff purchased off in the timelines that you need and mm -hmm. replenish, pay that credit card. Mm -hmm. um, they typically will work with you and they'll move the interest rate that we're charged down. They'll move the per file fees down. But at the end of the day, it's business. They're looking to make money. I mean, they're a for, they are a for-profit business, right? Yeah. So and they got to support their overhead, but so I, it, it's entirely negotiated. I know specifically a couple of lenders that we utilize 
the same warehouse entities with, and it's completely all over the board. We're typically better than them because we've got a better quality and a better relationship with a lot of them. But um, it's there can be huge discrepancies in that. Yep. Hundreds and, of dollars. And that's going to affect the rate that you take to market, right? Yep. Yeah, and, and talking rate to market, I mean, I think it's important for the consumer to understand if they're listening in is how are rates set on a day-to-day basis? And, and you know, how, how, how is it possible that sometimes a rate could change once, twice, three times in a day? Yeah. How much time you got? <laughs> oh, man, I'm going to need to pour a drink for this one, guys. <laughs> <laughs> um, that I, I, can, I can sum it up in a real easy answer. Um, we all are selling the same exact rates. It doesn't matter whether you're at Van Dyke Mortgage or ABC Lender down the street. We all use the same baseline for it. It's your cost, it's your efficiency, it's how much is it, what is my break even? So when I go to sell this loan, if I gotta make $5,000, the interest rate that we provide to the consumer is gonna dictate what, how, what rate it is for that $5,000 I need to mm-hmm. make. Lender down the street might be at $6,500. So their interest rate's gonna be higher. Or lender, but you go to internet lender down the street who it's gonna take you 75 days to get a loan through. Yeah, they're lower cost. It might only cost them $2,000 to get the loan through, but again, it's taking them 75 days. So um, that's the biggest thing. And because we're all dealing with the same rate set, when the price that we get from Fannie, Freddie and Ginny change, um, that that's what dictates the change on our side. I have to make sure that I'm making that that dollar Same amount margin, that I need yeah. to break even. Cool. Yep. Any other questions that you have? I, I think I'm good. Yeah. John, is there anything like we should have talked about in regards to where mortgage money comes from? Um, no. I can say when I graduated college and ultimately stepped into a, a secondary marketing job, I had no idea what it was. <laughs> but uh, I think it, it carries this almost like Wizard of Oz feel to it, where people kind of perceive you as the guy behind the curtain pulling the strings and making millions of dollars left and right. It's not the case. Um, all we're honestly doing is what we described. I'm, I'm looking to make sure I can fund the next loan and that we hopefully break even in the process. Yeah, cool. So, you know, I think there's an opportunity, you know, in the future for us to bring John back because I think the next side of this question is what are some of the things that, you know, dictate mortgage rates, what mortgage rates are. We didn't even really get into that today. And there's probably a lot of folks who are are interested into that. But it's interesting to take a look to John's point behind the curtain. Like, where does all of this come from, you know, to be able to put you know, folks at home in as rapid pace as we do. It, John, just out of curiosity, my last question. Um, how long does it take from the time that we lend somebody money on their home for us to pay off what we borrowed against that warehouse line? If I'm, if I'm delivering that to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, typically under a week. It's crazy. If I'm if I'm actually going to market, so with Ginny May, we're forming those pools that go to Wall Street for Ginny May. Okay. Those take a little bit longer. That's probably four to four to five weeks. Okay. Well, that's pretty fast. Yeah. I mean, you're essentially paying your balance off every week. Mo- a, a lot quicker than the consumer. Yeah, a lot quicker than the consumer. <laughs> In most cases. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which is why the interest rate's not fourteen percent uh, or twenty-two percent or right. whatever, right? 
Uh, like yep. you're, you're late like one day. Boom. 22% yeah. I better pay this. Have a nice life. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's <So>. the big. <laughs> yeah. Well, John, thanks for joining us, man. We look forward to having you on again sometime. So uh, for tuning in, thanks for... Uh, for thanks, ch- What's that? I said thanks, John. Yeah, thanks, John and John. Thank you, Brian. Uh, but thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Context to Contracts podcast. On behalf of John Barnes and John Jones, I'm Brian Lovell. If there's anything that you need, we're always here to serve. Cool. Thanks, John. Good job, man. Get back to work. Hey, um, I'm going to need some help with those high balance rates, by the way. High balance is great. What are you talking about? They're they're phenomenal. (laughs) It depends on who you ask then.